0: Hello, it is Liam Schmidt here from Irish Funds. Today we are bringing you the next in our series of recordings from our recent Irish Funds Annual Conference held in Dublin on May the 18th. We are delighted to share with you this panel discussion entitled 30 Years On, a Continuing Evolution of ETF Investing, which will be moderated by Tara O'Reilly of Arthur Cox. The esteemed panelists for this discussion include Keshava Shastri from DWS, Deborah Furr from ETFGI and Alan Trimmer from Aberdeen. Thirty years ago, investing was revolutionised with the launch of the very first ETF product. In the decades since, ETFs have evolved at a rapid pace. This panel will discuss these developments and what the future holds for ETF investing. I'm sure you'll find the insights to be fascinating and do keep an eye out for further podcasts shortly from the Irish Fund's Annual Conference 2023.
1: welcome to this session. I'm Tara O'Reilly and I'm co-head of asset management at Arthur Cox. And I have been working with ETFs, not for 30 years, but for many years. (laughs) Um, And it has certainly been a journey uh, full of twists and turns, full of new ideas, full of how do we get this to market and then a rush to market when you've worked that out. And I feel very fortunate to have been part of the innovation and development of this product throughout the last few years. Um, I'm joined on the panel by a number of people who were also on that journey and so who need no introduction, so I will just welcome them to the panel. And that's Keshava Chandri from DWS, Deborah Foer, ETFGI, and Alan Trimmer from Aberdeen. When I first started working with ETFs, they were somewhat more of a niche product, an interesting innovation but they are now very much a central part of the investing ecosystem. And we see statistics like in the US, there were more ETF fund launches than mutual fund launches. And the trading of ETF is about a third of all equity trading, little less in Europe, but still around a seventh, which are significant numbers for what was a niche product. We've even upset poor old Elon Musk, who has taken to Twitter to explain that index funds um, now own more shares in Tesla than he does. Now, in the time that I've been working with ETFs, they've moved from what what they typically offered, which was core equity exposure within a liquid, transparent, low-cost product. And while they have retained much of those features, it is now more considered a wrapper that can accommodate a multitude of other asset classes. It can be index tracking, but also active, physical replication as well as synthetic. And we're also now moving into protection with buffers and covers. And it is very much a building block that is used for portfolio construction, for gaining alternative exposures, and for hedging. So a product with this level of growth and innovation is bound to have seen regulatory scrutiny. And certainly in my time, it's seen quite a bit of that. Now, very timely for today, we've seen the IOSCO final report published. And the headlines from that are good. What we've seen them say is that the structure is resilient in times of historical stress and also that this is not a structure that risks financial stability. So some of the challenges that were aimed at ETFs now being recognised as not valid. So with ETFs gaining acceptance, what's next? And we're going to take a look at that. Investor demand has driven some of the developments over time. There are changing needs of investors and we also have tech to look at and they will reshape ETFs. Now to my mind there is no better place to look at this than at an Irish funds conference with Ireland being the home to 67% of all EU domiciled ETFs and our nearest competitor with 20% of the market. So you are clearly sitting in the centre of excellence as we discuss this topic. So Debbie with my shameful plug out of the way I might hand over to you for a more objective view (laughs) in terms of What's brought us to here? What growth have we seen?
2: Yeah, and so, um, you know, I am, as you can tell from my voice, originally from the States, but the U.S. was not the first place where ETFs were listed. So actually, we're celebrating the 33rd anniversary of the listing of the first ETF, which happened in Canada. The U.S. came three years later. Um, When we look at the ETF industry, like Tara, I've been involved with doing research on ETFs for uh, 26 years. So when I started, there were 21 ETFs and $8 billion dollars. If we look at the end of April, we now have $9.9 trillion invested in ETFs. There's over 11,000 products with over 23,000 listings. There's 672 issuers of the products around the world. They're on 81 exchanges in 63 countries. So we've grown a lot. Um, And I think the basis for that growth and why they've been successful in some of the history is in the beginning when I was sitting trying to tell people about ETFs and I'd call them and most of them would say, (coughs) are you gonna pay me rebates? And I'd say no, and they tell me to go away. Um, What you found is as we've had RDR and Dutch RDR and moved to more people embracing investing, what we've seen is ETFs have become the only democratic investment product. And that is what has driven their success. And by that I mean, you can look at who owns ETFs and there's now over 7,000 institutions. So sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds, asset managers, advisors, but also end retail investors. And when we look at the types of products, up until 2008, they were all focused on equities and they were all indexed. But as Tara said, in essence, ETFs here are usage funds with the added benefit of being listed and traded on exchange. Right now, about 75% of the assets are in equity exposure. Fixed income accounts for about 17%. Active is about 5.5 and then you have a mixture of other things. The US though is the dominant home of assets. So of that 9.9, the US accounts for 6.98 trillion dollars or 70%. Today Europe is at 1.58 trillion and we're accounting for about 16, Asia Pacific ex-Japan is 617, Japan is 478 and then you have them mixed around the world. Well, I should add, Canada, although they were first, is 2.8% of all the assets today. It's a smaller market. So I think what's really driven it has been initially people coming up with good ideas and hoping people would buy them, but as people have embraced them and seen them as a useful tool to be used in so many different ways, now we see investors, and actually DWS just had the largest seeding of $2 billion into an ESG product. So you see people coming to the issuers and saying, "Build this for me," hmm.
1: and maybe I'll stop there. I could talk forever, as you, as many of you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you commented there on, on it being new ideas that are driving it. So I think it's useful to look at. You know, we've seen what's driven us to here, but what are we seeing driving the, the development at the moment? So, Alan, what do you think are the key product trends that we're seeing at the moment?
3: So, I guess from uh, my <clears> perspective, thirty-three years or thirty years, where three months nearly into our etf journey so uh, we're still very early days in um our kind of plan and what we're going to do going forward but i guess a key tenant from our etf strategy was about active etfs um, obviously a relatively small proportion of the emir markets always get nervous, Debbie, you're here, sub <laughs> 5% if I get my numbers right. Um, but it's definitely an area that I think we will see continued growth on. And I think as we've been going through our strategy and the launch of our first fund, which is an active ETF, what I've realized is it's a wrapper. And that's a kind of key thing for me. And a lot of the conversation I've had during the last sort of year or so has been, oh, ETFs, great intraday dealing, low cost. And I guess from my perspective, it's about the value that the proposition brings to our clients. So ultimately, whether it's an active, passive, systematic, smart beta strategy, it's about the value that delivers. And I think we need to sort of move the narrative on to actually say, look, the ETF wrapper is suitable for a whole different range of products and investment strategies, maybe not all, you know, of liquid strategies or something that you've got a really high uh, amount of IP in, you really maybe don't want to have the daily disclosure of that portfolio. But from my perspective, whether a client wants to come and buy our investment capability mm-hmm. through a, a mutual fund, ETF, token, model portfolio... That's a key thing is we need to meet investors. And I think from my perspective, the ETF is that growing area of demand where we're seeing more retail clients starting to buy ETFs. The RDR, obviously the European Union didn't go quite as far as we maybe wanted or expected them to level the playing field in terms of retrocessions. But I think from our side, we'll bring to market, you know, active, innovative ideas and the ETF wrappers that our clients really want and like I say, it's, it's quite interesting how the journey I've been through with the team back in Aberdeen has kind of evolved from this is just a passive strategy of capability through the ETF wrapper and actually there's so many signs now that active is, is a way forward.
1: And you mentioned that, that, um, it may not be a wrapper for all strategies. Um, We've heard about what DWS is doing on ESG, but we've also heard about crypto and that's a more challenging asset class for regulators. So, you know, Keshava, where are we going with crypto ETPs, ETFs?
4: (laughs) Thank you, Tara. I mean, just to add up on what kind of Alan and kind of Debbie mentioned, you know, the client base goes from extremely sophisticated central banks, sovereign wealth funds. If you look at the largest client in the world, is Bank of Japan, That's you know, it's not confidential, it's public knowledge. They're going to several, several, several hundred billion dollars of usage of ETFs uh, in their portfolio. And then you have the other end, obviously, the retail, but everybody in between sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, asset managers, some of them are publicly available on Morningstar databases or Bloomberg HTS function because of 13F filing in the U.S. Some of them, some of them are not visible, but the client base is extremely sophisticated and they use it for whether if it's strategic allocation, tactical allocation, transition management, and so on. And the the ETF, as you said, it's it's a wrapper, and the ETP is obviously a a different kind of um, technology in a way, a different wrapper. Uh, And there are obviously existing products in Europe um, in gold, silver, Mm. the commodity exposures, and also carbon and some of the others where a fund regulatory framework does not allow for that exposure. Um, and we made a public announcement about three weeks ago um, that we're partnering with um, Galaxy, one of the kind of leaders in uh, digital assets um, uh, area and tokenization to launch as an initial step um, some crypto ETPs. I, um, I can't give too much information yet, but you probably could look at it. But our end goal is that we've been quite um, uh, transparent about it is stable and tokenization. And, and I feel like, you know, tokenization, if you have to break it down, it's, it's securitization in a new technology, um, and it's democratization, um, especially democratizing um, asset classes that currently is not available for um, outside of the largest institutional clients. So think about private markets, real estate, infrastructure, or even more on the liquid side, on the bond side, right? If you want to invest in U.S. Treasuries, one of the most liquid securities, you have to go minimum of a million dollars, right? Which for most retail, it's not available. Whereas if you can tokenize it into million tokens, and you could invest into $1 or maybe less token, but you could do it for $100 or something, it suddenly becomes you know, an accessible product for everybody. And some, sometimes people say, oh, there's already mutual funds. Um, you know, why do you want to enable that? But it's like some people want S&P 500. Some people want Google as a stock. They don't want all the other stocks in a S&P. So in the same way, in the cryptos that we, you know, the announcement we made is on the crypto ETP as a first step and I call that a door opener to go into the digital assets to understand the technology, understand the ecosystem, understand the the partners that are available. It is a new way of doing things, looking on, working on the blockchain and, and so on. So, you know, you want to go in steps. So we believe in, yeah, there are clients, institutional clients that are basically saying, we want access, some clients are vocal and public about it.
1: And and you talk about that investor interaction and maybe a question for you, Alan, You know, when you're looking at getting into ETFs, is it product innovation, a new wrapper, or is it investor demand that's driving you that way?
3: So I definitely think it's a combination of both. Yeah, I think it's a really flexible vehicle to facilitate our innovation agenda, clients are wanting more thematic sustainable type strategies which i think we will and are able to deliver through the etf so there's definitely a a drive for us to get new product types and strategies out there but it's also that client demand i think the the whole digital agenda and digital um, approach more platforms we're going to see people wanting more and more of the etf the flexibility the, the intraday trading you know being able to rebalance portfolios more mm-hmm. effectively. Um, and I think on the, the crypto side, I think, again, it's a really interesting area where um, the largest investor in Archax, which is um, the UK's only FCA-regulated uh, digital securities and crypto exchange. And I think, let's like, say, you can see where that technology is going, distributed ledger <coughs> technology blockchain. And I guess it is quite interesting for something like crypto where – we're talking about all the benefits of that, actually, to then wrap it back into more of an institutional mm. uh, product in the ETP uh, for <coughs> professional investors. But I think with that, kind of provides some comfort and enables investors to get exposure in a more institutional, sort of friendly way, whether it's how you deal with that on your operating model pl- mm. um, platforms internally. so. Yeah, I think crypto is quite an interesting one because I think a lot of it is around learning about the technology that sits behind it. But like I say, the the fact we have to launch crypto ETPs is actually probably going against the whole point of why you're looking at blockchain and uh, DLT.
1: Yeah, but I think from a regulatory perspective, we're probably a bit away from getting it into a regulated product. Yeah, Yeah, and also,
4: you know, the the token, though, I think everybody's looking at tokenization, Mm -hmm. even when we speak to the regulators around the world, you know, we've been spending a lot of time um, as as almost the chair of some of the industry bodies, so speaking to some of the regulators in Asia, in the Middle East, and even in in Europe, a lot of them basically completely believe in tokenization. Mm -hmm. Um, and, they, you know, with the crypto, they, they're still kind of a bit hesitant. <clears throat> it requires a lot of, you know, if you think about, you know, you're going to tokenize the building. How do you know the person who's tokenizing is still holding it, hasn't sold it onto somebody else? There are some quite basic things that we need to figure out for for basically the, the proof of ownership, you know, the custody of it and so on. You know, you can't just take the whole building and put it in a custodian. You know, it's difficult. I don't think State Street would have as many, <laughs> as many <laughs> you know, garages to keep all those buildings. But... You know, for that doing that, it will take some time, but in the, in the meantime, to understand the technology, and again, I would, think, I would say like, you know, like in, you know p- people probably don't have Indian rupee as an investment, um, but they probably have Indian stock as an investment in their portfolio. How do you buy the Indian stock? You buy through the Indian rupee that you might convert your euros into Indian rupee or dollars into Indian rupee. In the same way, the Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever the cryptocurrency it is, you probably will use that to transact in an asset that is traded in that cryptocurrency. So, and, you know, it's not for everybody. Some people might have, you know, Indian rupee or Nigerian Naira or Pakistan or whatever, they might have that. But most people, it's more of a byproduct to get to the end um, asset that they want to buy equity or bond. So to that point, to understand, you know, the whole angle, and as you said, there's a front to back, you know, you've got to do retooling in, one of some of the largest asset managers and in the traditional finance world. And you've got to start walking before you start running. Um, And there are significant things to be sorted out, which will be sorted out, but for tokenization to work, like liquidity, for example, there are a couple of, in Switzerland, they've uh, actually tokenized a couple of corporate bonds, um, the SDX, the Swiss Digital Exchange. Um, But, you know, the, the liquidity angle of people trading in it hasn't really taken off yet. It takes time for people to connect in, providing the right kind of plumbing work in a way.
1: Yeah, and and we talk about democratisation and learning as we go, and one of the things we're seeing changing is also not just the products, but actually, you know, how new entrants are coming into the market. So we're seeing changes in the structures, Mm -hmm. we're seeing, you know, is it going to be a build, like Aberdeen, is it going to be a buy, or are you going to do a conversion as the term in the States, we think it's easier here, but, you know, listed and unlisted share classes. So, you know, do we see that adding to the the kind of marketplace in terms of new entrants?
4: I mean, the conversion, actually, I don't think it's new at all. I think the, one of the first conversions was Credit Suisse, I think, in yep. Europe, right, that converted. Yeah. This is in 2000, kind of the year, probably 2005 or 6 or something yeah. like that. So it's not a, you know, that, oh, it's done first in the U.S. Actually, Europe, you know, and actually, we've had active ETFs in Europe. You know, I think Marshall Waste had it in 2007 or something. So we look always to, to somewhere else or innovation happens somewhere else. Actually, we're doing a lot of innovation here. So conversions are taking place, unlisted share classes, are, you know, are being done as well. So I think there's, you know, that's what we talked about it before. It's a, it's a technology tool that you can develop it in multiple ways, buy, build, you know, convert. Um, and people are really seeing that before some of the managers might have taken, oh, this is competition, and it might kill, you know, some part of my business. They actually realized that, no, if you don't have this solution available to clients, they will go somewhere else. And one. Big thing that people have noticed in 2008, the biggest crisis before the coronavirus volatility and during the corona volatility, when volatility increases, more people take ETS as an access tool because of what Alan said about liquidity available. And the regulators, the BIS report, the FCA report, during that time highlighted how it becomes a shock absorber during the crisis rather than shock amplifier. Right? Um, and the fixed income market, and, you know, it, the fixed income ETS became price transparency because, you know, globally there are 50,000 stocks, but there are more than 4 million bonds. Right? So there were not that many bonds trading, whereas ETS being listed, they were trading. So people were using bootstrap method to look at what is the ETF price, use that to derive the underlying bond prices. So it was really giving transparency into it, the confidence into the market. And, and some of the regulatory report on the back of that has really shown. And the IOSCO paper that yeah. you mentioned, Tara, is kind of saying it is what the industry has been saying. It's proved it multiple times. Yeah,
1: no, oh, absolutely. And as we talk about all of those advantages and we see the changes in the product and the changes in the people, if I look back, Debbie, one of the very first arguments was is it active versus passive? But do you see that debate as being over now? This is just a universally accepted way of bringing investors in.
2: I think there's still some people who think it's indexed, but I wouldn't even call index products passive because the important thing is for most people, they've been using ETFs to generate alpha. So they look at you can get 90% of the variation returns from your asset allocation. So if you're using low-cost or cost-efficient ETFs as building blocks, you generate alpha through overweighting and underweighting. So I don't think that they've always been thought of as this passive go away and leave it, Um, but I do think increasingly, especially in the US, end investors retail are asking the managers of products to convert into ETFs. And the irony is, you know, here we're talking about should the central bank allow for non-transparent active. When we look at Capital Group, Dimensional, Putnam, T. Rowe and others coming into the ETF industry, where they've been converting mutual funds to ETFs, they're going for transparent. Mm. And so I think eventually we'll get over that hurdle here and we'll probably see people converting. Um, So I do think that it fits everything. Um, and I think that's part of the appeal. It's a little bit different sales process, though, if you're selling active, right? Because you basically are going out selling Kesheva as opposed to the S and P 500.
4: I mean, this is a really good point that you mentioned about that, you know, generating alpha using you know index products. Because I, I speak to clients regularly throughout the you know throughout the whole uh, our global presence, and I was in Asia recently, and there are there are hedge funds who are basically say looking at and also family offices where they will look at what is the house call to, say, long Korea, short, short Taiwan. And rather than picking certain stocks in Korea, they'll just pick a Korean ETF and maybe short the Taiwan ETF. And then the thing changes to long India, or short Brazil, or long India and Brazil, and they'll use an Indian ETF and a Brazil ETF. And three weeks later, the, the call changes. So they're really, I mean, this notion that Debbie mentioned that in a passive, just is buy and hold for 10 years, People are really not doing that at all. I mean, some people are, that's fine, they do a 60-40 and they just sit back and, you know, totally fine. But you can really generate alpha by looking at, especially the last three, four years of volatility has has shown you, and as Alan was mentioning, the number of products available with different themes, whether it's AI, robotics, you know, sectors, you know, global equity, global fixed income, credit high yield, whatever your flavor is and more products are coming out, you can really use that and get that um, exposure really, really quickly. And, to one point about you know, whether you like or not RKTF, you know in the, in the U.S., one thing they've shown, I mean, the performance is obviously different these years, but in the early years, it was transparent, active ETF, but look at the performance they had. So showing the secret sauce can be, you know, it, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, if you really believe in it, she's you know, he, shown that it can completely work for you And
1: I think we've heard, you know, that portfolio transparency debate as holding people back from going into active for a while, but then clearly people were just getting on with getting into ETFs. And I know you mentioned that maybe you don't do all of your products um, I do take comfort from the IOSCO report, and I do hope the central bank has read it <coughs> in depth. Um, you know, it would be nice to have the option for less transparency, um, and I think that the regulatory reports are certainly supportive of the fact that arbitrage and the mechanism for arbitrage is the key thing that we need to support here. Yeah. Um, I'll
3: just say on that, uh, you know, when we talked about converting mutual funds, you know, that would, the semi-transparent opportunity would probably accelerate some of that. You know, if we could be confident that we could reserve or preserve some of the IP and some of our strategies, um, I think that could really accelerate, you know, people creating, you know, ETF share classes um, and really sort of drive the industry forward.
1: And then we, we talked, we've mentioned democratisation quite a bit, <clears throat> but, you know, and technology, and you combine the two of those, and then you're looking at, well, are we looking at new distribution markets? So when we look at technology impacting on distribution and you're trying to build a product, you know, we're seeing changes there. So what do you see as the opportunities for you?
3: So I guess from our perspective, let's like say, uh, less than three months in, it's still very early <laughs> days, but um, I think, like, say, the whole agenda around the digital platforms is really kind of coming to the fore now um people are really looking to be able to you know transact on their phones all of these things not send a fax into a a mutual fund company (laughs) um so i think from our perspective there's a lot of drivers there in terms of new clients coming to the market you know younger people who are more likely to buy an ETF than they would do a traditional mutual fund, so I think from our perspective, it really is about trying to capture in and help develop mm-hmm. platforms um, to kind of be able to support the effective you know, transaction costs associated with an ETF Can we work with platforms to sort of reduce those or come up with more efficient ways of doing it so trying to remove some of the barriers around how people, you know, need to transact the, the ETF. Like I say for a lot of clients it's a non-issue, um, mm. but there are certain investors of certain platforms where I think we still need to w- do some work to sort of broaden the appeal and demand.
4: Oh, exactly. I mean, if you, look, you know, look back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, people were still buying mutual funds, you know, they were still opening up CSD accounts, custody accounts, how do I do this? But actually, you know, a few years ago I saw on, on the tube, you know, uh, commuting in from home to office and one day I saw people basically transacting reTF ETF on their phone, you know, left, right and basically doing, and people are doing more and more, they kind of the robo-advisors are becoming quite yep. much more um, um, available and they're using these building blocks and as uh, kind of Debbie and Alan mentioned, it's a building block and they're like, you know, I can generate alpha, I can generate beta, you know, whatever you were trying to achieve, it gives you that flexibility. You know, it's not a secret source by having a bad product coming into an ETF. It doesn't give you wings. It doesn't give you performance, mm. right? If it's a bad product outside of an ETF, it would probably still be a bad product yep. as an ETF. It doesn't give you any free wings, but you know, it, it does give a lot of flexibility to clients, um, you know, especially when volatility is that like, you know, I come from a trading background, and I say you know, liquidity is like air. You don't realize how important it is until it disappears, right? And, that, and that's been during the COVID crisis, people have seen, being able to transact and you know leave quickly when you need to and get that capital, return off the capital rather than return on the capital when there's crisis.
1: Yeah, and I think that that liquidity piece and that whole the the information behind all of this is really important. And I think you know do we think, Debbie, that technology is going to add in terms of information and reporting? Definitely. And I think that the other benefit retail investors
2: get is on most of these, you know there's now more than thirty one savings plans for ETFs. And what they're getting is the benefit of some professional organization building model portfolios Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so they can look at, you know, BlackRock, DWS, State Street, others um, building portfolios that they can use without having to pay a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So they can invest 10 euros per week, per month, whatever they want to do. I do think that... um, there is a lot more data and reporting, but I do think there's still opportunities, right? Um, we don't yet have a consolidated tape. And so one of the biggest challenges we have in Europe for people who aren't in the ETF space is, you'll look on exchange and say, well, these are ETFs, but they're not trading on exchange. Mm-hmm. So what, where they are trading is most investors are using request for quote platforms. And so the trades get done on these RFQ platforms, which technically is OTC. So we know that about 70% of the trades are being done there and there's been debates for many years about this tape, Um, I do think it would be beneficial because then people would feel more comfortable that they can get both in, the concern is getting out. Um, You can get in or out because reality is there is an ecosystem of trading firms that do creations and redemptions, in most cases are obligated by exchanges to be there and keep the spreads within a certain band, but many people don't know that and don't understand it and don't see it on exchange, so I do think data is a challenge and it's an opportunity um, but there's always things we have to sort out and this
4: is where actually the irish funds and as, as the etf committee there and many of the the ia the and some of the industry bodies are working very closely uh, with regulators with even the european commission esma european parliament to do the consolidation both post-trade but also pre-trade uh, i actually believe that you know the aum in the usage space will be much higher if there's more transparency because there are clients, you know, what Debbie mentioned about seven trillion in the US ETF AUM, I would probably say between 10 and 15% of that is with non-US clients. Mm-hmm. And majority of that 10, 15%, let's call it a trillion dollar, let's say, a trillion dollar, there's probably about 60, 70% of those clients, it's actually inefficient for them to own the US ETF because of the withholding tax on the dividend. Yeah. Because in the US, as you know, every ETF has to pay a dividend once a year. And if you're a non-US client, so anybody outside the US jurisdiction or US person, you're going to be taxing up to 30% of the dividend yield. And take an example, S&P currently at 2%. 30% of 2%, that's 60 basis points every year that the client is using an inefficient product on. So if there's more transparency like consolidated tape and, and those kind of things, I think you'll have more clients around the world who will basically be saying, OK, I can go to, and we're already seeing that. We've seen Latam clients. We've seen. Middle East clients, we've seen Asian clients switching out of because we're doing a lot of work with them. But some of the clients are still saying, oh, you claim this to be an ETF, and, but I see the volume. I see this $100 million of trading in the U.S. ETF. The same e- exposure in Europe is trading half a million. How do I know I have liquidity? It's an education process, but yeah. hopefully also, with your, as you mentioned, with the data and with the regulatory um, uh, guidance and framework, we can make that more easily available.
1: And and as we talk about things like that, these are hurdles we're overcoming, we're seeing them and we're Mm -hmm. trying to challenge them. And we've talked about all of the positivity around new product development, new entrants. but Alan, I guess it can't be universally positive for the continued growth of ETFs. And Debbie mentioned... Why not? (laughs) Well, that's up to (laughs) you guys. We've heard the word model portfolios, so do you see disruptors coming, other things that might challenge the ETF growth?
3: So I think, um, obviously, things like direct indexing in the U.S., people being able to buy individual stocks. I think, obviously, there's a group of individuals who are comfortable doing that type of investment. But, actually, I think model portfolios will play into the ETF's hands. Um, You know, the point before saying, actually, if we can build a cheap portfolio which has exposures to ETF, it gives a lot of investors who maybe aren't skilled enough to really do the asset allocation and which ETFs to be buying, you know people have done research on the underlying ETF. I think that is where we 'll see a lot of the the growth coming um, and model portfolios in particular will be <coughs> beneficial to ETFs and um, the direct indexing I think is going to be quite interesting to see how much uh, customization people actually want and when they actually see the outcome and the results of their own Tinkering. I look at my own pension scheme and think I should have uh, <laughs> gone to somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, but I think, like I say, the model portfolio is going to be a new opportunity. Direct indexing. I think tokenization is also going to be the big thing, as we've touched on before, in terms of how quickly mm. will we see the tokenization come in? Um, and now we're tokenizing ETFs. Mm. How, how is it all going to work, the infrastructure? to support that. But I think it's a really exciting journey because I think all of these will interplay to build scale for the end investor, ultimately. I think you know whether we see more mutual funds converting to ETFs, whether we see the tokenization on the ETFs, if we, I guess our aim and our ambition is to build larger and larger funds because it ultimately reduces the cost to investors. So I think a lot of the innovation that's going on from a vehicle perspective will we'll actually support the growth of ETFs as well.
1: One of the challenges sometimes that, that gets mentioned is regulatory challenge because sometimes that can either be too slow or it can restrict. And, Debbie, you know, we have the IOSCO paper. It has a clear focus on APs, market makers. So we've moved from product maybe to more the players in the marketplace. You know, do you have any concerns around where we might go in relation to some of those or in terms of how there's a selling done?
2: Yeah, I guess the concern that the regulators, and I can remember being here um, at the other convention center when the head of IOSCO mm-hmm. got up and said ETFs are a very good innovation, they're concerned there might be a black swan event and they're concerned that when the authorized participants who are able to create and redeem are high frequency trading firms, that's a concern for them because it's not a Goldman Sachs or a UBS or Morgan Stanley that they know. Um, I do think those firms are committed to being there, but I do think regulators, even the IMF came out with something quite recently, are concerned in looking at the concentration of certain types of products being traded by those firms. Um, So I do think they'll continue to look at that. I think they've looked at even index providers and said, should index providers be regulated? You know, they did make some, in some people's minds, arbitrary decisions about delaying rebalances. Mm. and so. I think they're all just looking at are there things that could be done given they're looking at retail investors um, to improve the outcomes or kind of make it more certain what's going to be the outcome going
1: forward. Um, yeah, And I think you mentioned retail investors and I think that's a big focus and also how we transition the European market to more of a retail market. But I think the other thing that brings, and we saw ESMA come out just uh, with its paper on costs and fees, and I think, you know, while we... This is very much a low-cost product. Looking at what does undue costs mean, what do excessive balances mean, I think that's one thing that's going to be an increasing focus as we go forward. Mm.
4: I mean, just on that that point about the the banks and the market makers, you've seen a number of players come and go in the past, right? Like Lehman Brothers came and went, or was there and went, Dresdner came and went and other, other brokers have left the market, other brokers have entered the market, and the market has functioned very seamlessly, right? Some of them have disappeared over a weekend, but not an impact. And to the point where, kind of, Debbie was mentioning about some of these you know, market makers and high-frequency traders, it's not that, you know, Goldman Sachs or Citibank is not involved. Some of these market makers with better technology, they're winning against some of these banks by a basis point or two basis points, and clients are... Um, are, are, are driven by best execution. So if I get something two basis points cheaper, so when we're buying a TV, we will, you know, look at um, different shops available. And if there's a better shop available, we we'll go to them. So in the same way, so these, you know, it's not that the banks and some of the bigger banks are not involved in the market. It's just some people have better technology and they're pricing better. If they leave, you will see that others are involved. And actually, the FCA wrote a very good paper in 2020 because they did the analysis to look at that. And they kind of realized and they went to the issuers and found out and saying that, okay, the market makers are there, especially in some products, maybe some market makers with their superior technology are, you know, more present. But if they, when you look down the next level down, you can see the bigger banks and the listed banks, the regulated banks. I mean, these market makers are regulated, you know, MIFID regulated, FCA regulated, they're not unregulated, but the bigger banks with ratings and, and, and listings are there, but it's just these guys are winning because, you know, better technology. Yeah. and
1: I think it's a question of whether they are regulated, will there be some kind of guidance around their role as an AP to a fund? So I think that is another of these issues that has to play out, but given that everything that has been said, you know, if, if you've only won but the market, somebody steps out, somebody will step in, that's exactly what we've seen happen. Exactly. As we approach kind of the end of our session, I'm going to go back to a very cliched question, which is one of the ones that was around when any of us started in ETFs, but it's very much that age-old question of, you know, do we see ETFs overtaking mutual funds, whether it's in the next 10 or in the next 30 years? Predictions. Well, I mean, one thing I think we might want to talk about before we answer that, because
2: I do think it kind of changes maybe the dynamics, is today, we see that HSBC is converting four index funds into ETFs with index fund share classes. And so they're able to carry over $6 billion of assets into this ETF set with index funds that are able to offer different share classes and different fees. We haven't seen, it's been possible to do, but we haven't seen anyone in Europe do that before. And so that's different than what's happening in the U.S. where people are taking a, active mutual fund and converting it to an ETF. I think because if you read the press, every ETF manager wants to be bigger than DWS or DWS (laughs) wants to be bigger than a Mundi. they're going to be looking at could they, should they convert mutual fund products into ETFs with mutual fund share classes and the assets, because it's an ETF with share classes, counts as ETFs. So my view before was there's going to be a lot of conversions in the U.S. because ETFs in the U.S. are more tax efficient. Now my view for Europe over the past few weeks has changed because I think if everyone wants to get bigger and other firms that want to be able to have share classes that are mutual funds because you have fractional shares and other benefits, this changes the dynamic. So I think there is a point where you still have mutual funds, but the assets sit here and maybe at some point ETS give them a run for their money. <laughs>
4: I mean, I, I I don't think this has to be this or that, right? It Doesn't have to be ETS bigger than mutual fund, mutual fund bigger than ETS. They're all a, a very good tool for clients, depending on what you want, right? If you have five billion to invest for a, you know for five years and you don't need liquidity because it's parked up, then do a mandate, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to do intraday, you know, go do futures again, it's with stamp or something. So what I would look at is basically, you know, it's it, it's not competition between the wrappers, between the asset, between us. It's about putting the client first and. For me, it's like on the real estate, it's location, location, location. Here, it's education, education, education. It's not competition between swaps against futures, against CTS, against mutual funds, against direct indexing. You know, if you have the know-how and you're, you know, you can be a hedge fund person. Go, go. You know, you can go and do single stock or single bond directly. Especially with tokenization, you can do it. But if you're like me, who basically, you know, first of all, compliance reasons we can't get involved. But then just you know, give it to a good manager and basically say, you know, that's what it is. So I, I don't think it's competition. I don't think it you know, needs to be compared who will be bigger and who's larger.
3: Being at the bottom of the pile at the minute. It's, not, <laughs> it's definitely not uh, about assets <laughs> uh, at this stage. Um, no, I agree. I think this is about the client first and foremost, as we touched on before, you know, if we can build scale in a single product vehicle wrapper that's going to be beneficial for the client. They're going to get the benefit of the economies of scale. They're going to get better value from the product. I do. You know, I'm excited by you know, what HSBC have done. I think that is really interesting. I think there's going to be some interesting bits around how they're managing some of the conflicts that could be created through that approach. I'm sure that that's all well thought through. But ultimately, I would like to see ETFs get to the same size, I'll sit on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: but I think that's a real sign of maturity from a period where we ETFs were looking to be bigger and challenging the big mutual fund to a position where ETF providers are now happy to work with them. So that's a positive outcome for us all. So look, as I approach the very looming red number that's telling me we're about to run out of time, I'd just like to say thanks to Kesheva, to Debbie and to Alan for joining me here today. Um, And I think we'll look forward to the reports from the Irish Fund session in 2053 as to whether the next 30-year review shows whether our predictions were right or not. And thank you all for joining us.